Hey everyone, this is Jamie Pride, and welcome to episode 20 of the Failure Proof Podcast. Everyone, my name is Jamie Pride, and thank you for joining us on the podcast where we explore performance, resilience, and the mindset needed to thrive in the modern workplace. If you are enjoying the podcast, then please spread the word. And if you could rate us on iTunes, that would also be awesome. On today's show, I am joined by a very special guest, James Spenceley. James is an Australian investor, award winning entrepreneur, and company director. He is the CEO and co-founder of More Asset Management, but he's probably most widely known as the founder and former CEO of Australia's fourth largest fixed-line telco, Vocus Communications. When he stepped down as the CEO of Vocus in March 2016, the company had a market capitalization of $5 billion. He's also the chairman of Airtasker the two times winner of the Entrepreneur of the Year. He's a BRW rich lister. He owns a basketball team, but more importantly, his biggest achievement was he was one of my first investors ever. Um, In this episode, we speak about how James made the leap from the corporate world to founding Vocus, what it was like to go from the company he founded. Um, We also speak about his views on leading, hiring, and inspiring people. His thoughts on the entrepreneurial environment um, in Australia are also hugely insightful. So if you're thinking about starting a business or thinking about investing, um, then I think you'll take away a lot from this episode. James is just an outstanding individual, so I hope you enjoy what he's got to say. And today on the podcast, I am joined by James Spenceley. How are you? Really well. Pleased to be doing this. Yeah, mate. It's been um, it's been a long time coming. Yeah, and we've yeah. known each other for a while. You were one of my very first investors. Yeah, really. That's right. I remember that. I don't know if I was the very first. No, but that you was, weren't very first. Yeah. But you uh, you wrote a very small check into one of my first businesses. So uh, thank you. No, it's a pleasure. Um, so uh, a lot of our listeners might not know who you are, although you have been in the business press a fair bit. Um, how did you start your entrepreneurial uh, entrepreneurial journey? God, I mean, I've started my entrepreneurial journey early, but, you know, never successful. So you probably won't dwell on the less successful parts. But uh, look, I've always just been interested in business. I've always been curious. Um, you know, when I was a kid, I'd wash the neighbor's bins for, you know, a couple of bucks. Uh, you know, then uh, went and started trading futures after I left school. Um, did a little bit of that sort of privately. Wasn't particularly successful at that. Yep. And uh, then started an ISP in the mid-90s, which, you know, should have been enormously successful. But I didn't really know enough about business to to grow it, you know, to mm. how to raise money, do all of that kind of stuff. So I was selling internet access in 1995 uh, and uh, managed to not be successful. So uh, that, that what, was... what motivated you to do that? Like, how did that's a big leap from uh, futures trading to to starting an ISP? Well, I was I went through. There was a step in between. I was fixing. Was it Comindico? Uh, no, that was before that. Oh, yeah, right, before yeah. Comindico. This yep. is uh, uh, mid 90s. So I went from um, fixing you know people's Macintosh computers and yep. sort of going around every day, earning 40 bucks an hour. I had an assistant. It was great. Little business um, back in the nineties was graphic designers that used their the Macs. Yep, uh, and then I saw these people querying zip disks around. Do you remember zip disks? Yeah, totally. The blue ones, the big big fat blue ones, right? Yeah. So they'd finish a design for a customer, put it in an envelope, wait for the courier to come at the end of the day. You know, courier to the person who'd load it up the next day, look at the design and go, "I don't like the color blue. I want a different color blue." Send the zip disk back, and then you know the the delay was so enormous. And I'm sitting there going, "Wow, you know, I just emailed my brother-in-law yesterday, and he responded in 30 seconds using email. Why don't you guys use email?" And they're like, what? What's email? And I'd explain email to them and say, well, you know, for $800, I can sign you up to Aussie Mail. And uh, you 
can get permanent email access for the whole month. How much do you spend on couriers? And they go, oh, thousand bucks at least a month. Totally. Like, Here you go. Cut your courier bill in half and you know sign up for the internet. Wow. And so you started an ISP. Yep. Started an ISP. was spectacularly unsuccessful. I got about 50 or 60 clients, which is all right. You yeah, know, yeah. Like I was turning over a million bucks. Did you put pops? Like, were you, was it, what did you do? Like, it was an MVNO? Or no, no, you... no. Put pops. I, you know, bought, bought sort of uh, old, old uh, servers and worked out how to run Linux and, you know, built a little ISP on it. You know, back in the day where, when you could actually screw up and take the whole ISP network down for, you know, an hour during the day <laughs> accidentally. Um, so that's how I cut my teeth. You know, I learned about ISP. I learned about technical. I learned about the commercial. Um, and I always say to people who startup businesses now is it's really good to have that background in a business you know to have worked in a business that does what you do to work in a business be exposed to accounts payable be exposed to all of the things that form part of a business and that's what that gave me now it wasn't successful but it taught me what i needed to learn to, you know to do the next step why what did you learn what what wasn't successful about it apart from probably oh, scalability <laughs> scalability um you know sticking all your accounts at the end of a month in a shoebox and you know company <laughs> checkbook to pay for beer i mean you're just that system systemization i couldn't tell you what my revenue was Right, you know, on a yearly basis, I just take the shoebox to the accountant at the end of the year. Yeah, but yet I needed to to raise money to actually, um, you know, grow the business. Um, and it's, I guess it's a capex heavy business as well. Absolutely right? capex heavy, right? Yeah, I could. Have, I mean, you know, I, I was turning over a million bucks a year, um, but I didn't know that. I went to the bank manager at the local branch. Said he said, you know, okay, so tell me about your business. Show me your accounts. I'm like, oh, I haven't got my accounts back for last year. I don't know what I did. You know, these are the course, days before MYAB. Absolutely, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It was it was was before I knew I knew about them anyway. Definitely before zero. Um, so that was. That kind of taught me I needed to, if I wanted to run a business at a successful and large scale, I needed yep. to go away and learn about running a business. And that's and, what I did. And did you shut it down? Or did you go? Uh, and- I sold the users and yeah. went and worked for uh, for the person I sold the users to. Uh, yeah. And then came across Comindico, which was a big startup back then, a big uh, telco startup. Yep. And went and worked for those guys because I'll, well, I'll get exposed to raising money. I'll get exposed to, you know, big infrastructure, um, marketing, all of that stuff. Um, right. And what I found when I went to work for a bigger business was I knew more than most of the people because I'd been involved in, you know, ground day one sort of building stuff stuff, building yep. a business. And most people just come from Telstra and didn't really have that experience of, you know, running a business. Um, so, you know, I learned what I needed to learn then and then mm. went off and started Vocus. Uh, and so Vocus is probably the thing I'm most known, known for. for. Yeah. yeah. Tell me about um, the day you thought about starting it. Like, where, where, like, I mean, so you're sitting in this big company, everybody else is sort of, I, I guess the other thing sort of take a step backwards. I think the interesting thing about in working in a small business is you work across all aspects of the yeah, business, right? Absolutely. So you're probably installing machines, putting on OSs and, yep. you know, sort of, so I guess sometimes I think having that holistic view of, of the business helps. But so you're sitting in a large corporate and you've gone, there's got to be a better way. Yeah, exactly right. Yep. And then, you know, the thing about large corporates, you see that they waste money. Um, they're not efficient. They don't communicate well. And all of those things you think, I can do those better, right? You know, right. I can build a culture that communicates. I can build a culture that doesn't waste money. I can do all of this stuff. Um, and then that's when the passion comes out and you go, I've just got to go do it. You know, I'm sick of like being right in a large organization and no one listening to me. Yep. And that's when the day when you just go, okay, I'm going to go do it myself. But you need money. You need backing. Like how did, how did you sort of how, – how logistically did you go from, okay, I'm sucking down a salary at, at Comindigo and now I need to build out a ISP? Well, the biggest thing I did was <laughs> I was I, you know, to be honest, I'm pretty – uh, I quite like risk, so yeah. I'm like, okay, I'll just quit my job and go do it. Right. Um, I went out to 
try and raise money and you know I had a pretty good reputation in the industry and found yep. a few people who give me a little bit of money not yep. enough um, and then I started with some more senior you know people people who had funds people who had uh, you know investment bankers people who knew about markets yep um, and that was right around the time that the the GFC started. This was sort of two thousand seven, two thousand eight. Yeah, not a great time to be raising money. Yeah, I remember I was finalising a deal with um, with these guys that I'd been spent probably two months with. Uh, walked into their office to kind of for a ten a.m. meeting um, to, to nut out how much they were going to give me. I think they were going to give me about half a million to a million. It was like it's done and dusted. We just need to size it. Find for a couple of final questions. Um, anyway, ten thirty rolls about by. I'm still in reception. Ten forty five. I'm still in reception. Eleven o'clock comes. They come out and go. Oh, look, our portfolio is down thirty two percent today. I don't think we're making any more investments. Wow. Shook my hand and said, look, let's catch up in a month or so. Boom. Yep. So there was my there was my number one investor gone. Like rug pulled from under yeah, you. Absolutely. So what did I do? I went home, I talked to my wife. She said, Oh, you know, do you believe in the business? I'm like, Yep. She's like, Okay, well, let's sell the house and we'll put the money in ourselves. Um, and then we put the house on the market the next day. Six weeks, eight weeks later, it was uh, it was sold. And wow, you sold your house to put the money into your business. Yeah, I like to take credit for that, but my wife reminds me that was <laughs> she was like, Well, why don't we just sell the house? We've got money in that. Let's put let's do it ourselves. <laughs> um and so you raised a couple of mil. Yep. Um off you go. Yeah, exactly right. So we, I put the money in. We'd raised a bit. I got an industry, another industry uh, telco um, uh, run by Bevan Slattery, sort of yeah. pipe networks. Put a bit of money in at the time, and, and we off we went. So I was employee number one. Hired a couple of mates, paid them some options. Uh, you know, they sat around in the office, uh, and we just started growing it day by day. And and so I mean, I still to this day walk down the street and see concrete plates with Vocus's name on it. Right? You tend to walk with your head down once you know they're there, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. And so tell me about that experience because how long were you at Vocus for? Like, oh, I was coming up on – so I started in 2007, left in late 2016, so sort of nine years. Yeah, that's yeah. a big chunk of your career, Yeah, right? big chunk, absolutely. How old were you when you founded it? So it was 2007. I was uh, 31. 31. So pretty young. Yeah, really young. Pretty young. Yeah. And so so tell me about that journey. So you – a typical startup. Yeah, typical but, startup. But it's a yeah. capex heavy startup, right? Really capex heavy. That's why we needed, you know, the millions of dollars to start before we even had a customer. Um, but look, what we offered was we wanted to be the telco's telco. So we wanted to take away some of the stress from the ISP, let them focus on marketing, and we were going to do all the infrastructure in the back end. Um, so we built a bit of that. We got a couple of early customers who backed us who didn't want to pay, you know, Telstra or Optus, who were the alternatives. They were their, yep. their competitors. Um, and we just marketed ourselves differently. And we, so you, you were know, wholesale, right? Wholesale. Yeah, that's how we started. Uh, we eventually sort of morphed a little bit uh, later on. Uh, and just grew. You know, I famously sat around specking our billing system saying, oh, we're never going to have more than 70 customers. So let's start with 001 and we can, you know, have three integers. And everyone looked at me and went, well, how about we just have five or six integers just in case? You know, <laughs> I'm like, I guarantee we'll never have more than 70 customers. I think when I left Vocus, including retail, we probably had about, you know, seven or 800,000. <laughs> wow. Uh, lucky you weren't in charge of the billing numbering system. Yeah, they took that off me pretty quick. <laughs> <laughs> and so I guess you've got to run pretty hard and yeah. you've got to keep raising capital. Yeah. Did you have any extinction, near extinction events during that sort of nine years? Oh, totally. I remember um, once we, we got Macquarie Bank uh, on to do a capital raise for us and we're putting fibre in the ground, right? We're digging the streets yeah. up, laying fibre up the cable. Really expensive. We were spending, you know, 20 or $30 million a year doing that plus, you know, on top of that billing systems development, all that sort of stuff. Um, so we, you know, we were down to, I don't know, a couple of million bucks in the bank. I went to Macquarie and said, look, I'm, you know, this fibre stuff pays off ridiculously quickly, but it's very CapEx intensive. I need money. I want to raise sort of, you know, 20 million bucks. They're like, yep, no problems. We went through this two-week process uh, and then they had a conflict and they decided at the end, like, right at the last minute, right before we were supposed to launch the deal to the public markets, um, they cancelled on me. And wow. I'm like, okay. And now I've got like less than a million dollars in the bank. Yep. And I've got fiber, you know, fiber deals coming in that I have to build. Um, so I went to Credit Suisse and Credit Suisse sat me down and, like, okay, we'll take the deal on. 
but being a Swiss bank, you know, here's our DD requirements and it'll take about three to four weeks. Anyway, of course, at that time, European debt crisis is starting to happen around 2011. Um, you know, markets are, are closing and uh, we're, we're out of money. So we launched the deal um, and, you know, European markets are off 4% that night, coming the next day. And uh, we got two, we were on trading halt, got two days. And uh, I remember them coming back to us at the end of the two days going, yeah, we haven't, we haven't been able to raise it all. You know, it's like we're, we're sort of half the money and, you know, we can't, no one will put all of the money in unless the whole lot's done. And I'm like, okay. I went home that night, had a couple of beers, just stared out the window. I'm like, I don't, you know, like, I don't know what it. to do. Could be it, yeah. right? Um, you know, we, we've been such a market darling and we'd had such great press and then for it to all kind of come down to us running out of money because the, the, the market's closed. Um, and I remember waking up at 6, 5 a.m. the next morning just you know, my wife was overseas. She'd gone on holidays because we'd had a holiday booked, and you know, she's with the two kids. <laughs> Timing, and uh, you know, this is like two weeks. She's been overseas, and the holiday was for three weeks. And she's calling me every day, going, "When are you coming over?" And I remember just pulling the covers over my head and going, "I'm not getting out of bed today. Like this yep. is, I, I just can't do it." And I, it was, like, it was a really heartfelt thing. I just couldn't do it. I was, I was exhausted. I'd yep. had enough. Um, just taking the punches and and was over it. Um, and then I just sort of lay in bed and you, know, you can't sleep when you're like that. Your no. head's just ruminating. You're just going through every possible permutation. And I'm like, okay, 30 minutes after doing that, I'm like, I'm getting out of bed. I'm putting my suit on. If we're going down, I'm going to go down from the front. <laughs> yep. And I walked into the office and that morning we we managed to get one of the bigger deals perpetual um you know jack over at perpetual across the line and we got the deal done and by you know 10 a.m we were, we were back on and trading skinny of teeth yeah skinny of the teeth I, I don't know we had you know like bills banking up we had no money in the bank we wouldn't have been able to pay wages the next day you know the next thursday or whatever it was yeah it was it was scary it, it was, was tight it was close yeah. um over the course of your career have you built up a network of confidants or people who you trust i guess during those those sort of periods of time is it a board thing or do you have external people that you work with to sort of sort of sort of bounce off you know your concerns or do you typically go it alone i just go it alone to be honest yeah um you know i live in, inside my head and kind of go through all the all the permutations you know what are the options pursue them um I guess I'm a little bit different like that. I don't. Re- I've never read a business management book. I've never yep. read a self help book. I've never, you know, watched podcasts about it. Um, I like to solve the problems myself, um, mm. and I feel like I've got a good way of solving problems. You know, probably six a.m. that day, I didn't didn't feel like that. But most of the time, I feel like I've got a pretty good way of solving it. So I tend to back my gut. Tend to back my ability to find out what I need to know to make a decision, which yep. is really important, and uh, and just go it. So I literally have had no one. You know, when those dark moments, yep. you know, hopefully it'd be normally be a wife, but she was off in the sunny shores. Of, uh, of Italy having a holiday. <laughs> yep. um, so, you know, it, was, it just always looked after it myself. And um, how do you deal with stress apart from, you know, kind of kind of soldiering on? I mean, are you uh, – do you exercise? Do you meditate? <laughs> do you, so you drink see me, right? heavily? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I don't think exercise is top of the list. Um, but one of the, one of the things is I used to. I used to exercise. I used to go to the gym, you know, two or three days, and then you get busy, and that's yep. the problem. You get busy, you stop exercising, then you start drinking a little bit more to relax at the end of a stressful day. Yep. Um, then you end up having a bottle of wine a night, and, you know, it's not – you know, you don't become an alcoholic, but it's your way to decompress. Yep. Um, and then that leads you to be hungover the next day, and the next day's hard. And you just can can get into a cycle. So mm. what I tried to do is when I get into a cycle like that, when stress was causing me real problems, yep. um, you know, I'd just try and break myself out of that. I'd say, okay, you know, what I need to do is just kind of take take some time, go for a walk, you know, get out of the office, go and have lunch, sit down somewhere and just have a quiet lunch by myself, not just invoke myself in, in you know, more of the problems at work and, you know, just try and 
get your mental kind of health back to a level where you can address problems, you know, yeah. rather than get consumed by them. Totally. And and do you sort of embody that with your team as well? I mean, I'm assuming at the leader of a pretty large business, you know, you've got a, a duty of care to your staff. Do you consider yourself a natural leader? Like, uh, Yeah, I'm a terrible manager, so I, I'd probably say I'm a natural leader. <laughs> you, know, you know, you always see those things as like the, 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 the leader's the guy at the front pulling the, the, the horse and cart and the manager's the one with the whip. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm definitely, yeah, I'm not a good manager at all. So, But, yeah. I, but one, one thing I'm good at is inspiring people, hiring yeah. the right people and empowering them. And yeah. that's probably, you know, you've always got to know your own skill set in a business. Um, so I stayed away from the day-to-day stuff. You know, I'm not good at that. Um, and so do you hire for that? Predominantly. Absolutely. You know, what I, my view on the world is you kind of, you know what your strengths are and you're mm-hmm. pretty honest with yourself about that. Um, I find a lot of people aren't, but, you, you know, to be successful, I think you've got to know what you're good at. What you're not good at is even more important. Mm-hmm. And then you go and find people who are really good at that. So you find, if you know, if you're disorganized, but you're a great leader, um, just as an example, um, you go and hire organized people under you. Um, you go and always hire people who are smarter than you in their area. You know, you go and hire um, people that just, can get on well with each other and create that culture where you know everyone works as a team and you all make up for each other's shortcomings and that's okay. Everyone has things they're really good at and things that they're not good at and as a team you cover it and I think building that kind of environment is what really truly made us successful. Mm. And um, I guess one of the questions I get asked a lot by founders is a boards. So how do they deal with their board? Um, and, uh, you know, I think the four common issues I, I speak about with with entrepreneurs is firstly their business partner, um, which you didn't really have one, right? Yeah, which, is, exactly. which is the yeah. advantage. That was easy. <laughs> yeah, so you'd have to deal with that. Um, you know, boards and, and relationships and, and stress. Um, so how did you assemble your board at Vocus? Yeah, it's good because we, I mean, we had just kind of a couple of investors on the board and we weren't, we didn't think too much about it. And um, that was when we were private. And then we went to list and you're suddenly going, okay, now I've got to get a board that, you know, um, is more public markets friendly. And there's two ways that people go about it. And I've seen this now as an investor is you go and get lots of yes people who just, you know, agree with what you say. You're the visionary, leave you alone, go do your work. Or you go get people who've, you know, got some ability to challenge you. Um, So I I did the latter because I thought, well, you know, I don't know what I don't know. Mm. Um, I need people to question me and I'm good at justifying things when they work and I'm also pretty capable of knowing when they don't. But mm. sometimes I need people to ask me those questions and that, yep. that seemed to work for me. So I got people who were good at challenging me, you know, that were um, a couple of people that had industry knowledge, a couple of people who were just, you know, really strong investment people with, you know, accounting backgrounds um, could justify my business or make me justify the business case and just assemble a board that was, workable, culturally aligned, people who liked each other and, you know, were, were willing to sort of challenge me when I needed to be challenged. How long were you private for before you listed? Three years private and then, you know. And then you listed. Yeah, exactly. What was the primary decision point to list? Needed capital. Needed cash. Yeah, that was just just access to cash. Access to cash, yeah. Um, we could kept, we could have raised a little bit more privately, um, but, you know, laying fibre down the street, I think, you know, in the time we listed, probably spent $100 million laying fibre down the street. You just can't get access to that fast enough yeah. um, if, you're gonna, if your business is going to grow really well. So it, a lot of people list because they think it's an exit. I mean, it's not an exit. It's actually more like, you know, golden handcuffs. Um, yep. As a founder, it's very escrowed. hard to sell. Yep. Escrowed. Even when you're not escrowed, it's almost impossible to sell. Um, so that's hard. You know, as soon as you sell, people are like, well, if the founder selling i'm going to sell and you know it might be to pay a tax bill but you know yep. no one believes it yep. um so that i think you've got to kind of be pretty pretty focused on on raising the money and to do that you've got to be publicly listed if you've got a really capex heavy business yep. um but if you don't stay private 
you know, you don't yep. need the public scrutiny. You know, people work out you're going to run out of money. They smash your share price. It affects your staff. It affects you. You know, it's it's hard. You know, the first year of being listed, I'd walk around the office and every single screen was up with Bell Direct or Comsec, and everyone clicking refresh every you know twenty minutes oh, on, yeah. the, on the share price. Tell me about it. Yeah, it doesn't, it, and that's not healthy, right? You no. start focusing on the share price as being your um, barometer of success, not the fact that you've just won a couple of deals and everything's going really well. So again, you kind of got to shift people away from that thinking, and that that was one of the lessons we learned pretty early. Totally. And then so nine years in, decided to do a transaction. Yeah, we did a transaction. Um, we, we'd done a lot of transactions previously that all been really successful. We, yep. We'd bought um, either assets or businesses that, you know, we could leverage or businesses where we had a lot of control. You know, we went in and sort of, you know, got rid of some staff that weren't culturally aligned and realigned the businesses together. Uh, and then we did uh, a merger with, uh, with M2, which was a, a retail business and we were yep. focused on wholesale and enterprise customers. Yep. Uh, we did that transaction and uh, that was probably, you know, looking back at it, it was definitely a mistake. Um, yep. you know, we didn't get what we had hoped out of that business. It was massive cultural disalignment. Um, you know, the CEO wasn't anywhere, you know, near as capable as we'd thought. And, you know, when I came to the board and said, these are my concerns, um, the board sort of said, well, you know, we're not really ready to, to replace the CEO. And I said, well, I'm not really ready to to keep going and uh, step down off the board from the company I'd started. And um, we'll come back to because that must be tough. I think um, let's talk about transactions though. So easier to do smaller transactions than bigger transactions. And there's something to be said about when there's sort of a merger of similar sized businesses that it becomes tough, right? Yeah, well, mergers are really difficult because no one has the kind of the – the strings control. or the control, you know, no one's sort of sitting here going, here's my vision. You're going, well, yeah, but my vision's over here and my vision's over here and how do you bring those together? Yep. Um, and that very really works. You know, uh, there, there are odd occurrences but you definitely need a vision and someone in the driver's seat um, and, and all the way down through the organisation, right? It's like this is the vision, we go into it and then every manager knows what the vision is and everyone's aligned. Uh, when you don't get that, it, yep. it doesn't work. And they can be distracting as well. Oh, look, it destroys shareholder value, you know, because it distracts the CEOs, it distracts the boards, it distracts managers, you know, people get mixed messages, people don't know where the direction is, where are we investing, are we investing in that part of the business or that part of the business, and it just suffers at every single level, um, mm. you know, decisions that should be really routine and simple. Um, you know, one of the things we did at Vocus was create this kind of culture of having the path of least resistance to the right answer. Mm. You know, it wasn't like what the boss said, it was just, like, is that the right answer? Yes, okay, just get on with it, you know, and not making it hard for someone junior to get a really good idea through the system um, and suddenly we just went from that culture to a culture that was incredibly convoluted messy um, you know didn't have any vision didn't have any like uh, kind of leadership and focus and and it destroys businesses really quickly yeah and so at a point in time you decided to to leave how difficult was that decision well, it was look it, pretty easy for me in some ways and pretty hard in others. Um, you're leaving the business that you started, you know, that you sold yep. your house for and, um, you know, all your friends are there and the people you've been through this journey with and that's the hardest part. Um, yeah, because I mean, I'm assuming you have a huge emotional connection. A huge emotional, yeah. I mean, it, it, and it's the people, right? It's yeah. absolutely the people um, that that you feel like maybe you're walking out on. And um, But on the other hand is, you, you know, when people aren't doing the right thing in the business, um, when people are making the wrong mistakes, when people aren't doing the, the genuine thing, um, when people are being disingenuous, when there's stuff being covered up and you can't get answers to your questions and you just – that's the type of experience that you, you either go along with it mm. or you fight against it. Yep. And what I did is I absolutely fought against it. I said, I'm not willing to not have my questions answered. You know, as a board member, I need my questions answered. And when those answers weren't forthcoming, mm. you've got to sit there and go, well, either two things. 
it's disorganized and the answers can't be found or the answers are being you know kept from me yep and under either of those situations if they're not willing to fix either of those you know you can't go on as as you know the person who founded the business as the you know the the main sort of visionary behind it well and i think i mean the responsibilities of being a director are pretty huge right i mean and and yeah. i think it's it's harder and harder to convince people to be public company directors at the best of times yeah. right, with businesses that are well organized um was it something you agonized over or was it was it at a you got to a point in time where it was like i'm, I'm done yeah, it was, look, it was either kind of make the changes, let's right. get a fresh CEO in there, someone with no, you know, neither right. side sort of political bias, yep. um, just tell us what the actual answers are, yep. tell us what the position of the business is, let's get that new person in mm. uh, so we can actually get the, get the information or I'm not willing to go on. Yeah, and that was really what it came down to. And so you've been married for a while. Do you go back and talk to your wife about it? And go, hey, honey, <laughs> I'm out of a job. What am I doing? Is that what? You, yeah, that, I think that works. I think that was probably the conversation. Well, I, I have back those to, conversations yeah. pretty regularly. <laughs> that's, um, yeah. that's right. Luckily, she's she's probably a bit of a risk taker, as you, you yeah, heard yeah. with the house story, selling the yeah. house story. So, uh, I mean, she just came back and said, "Look, you know, you, you weren't happy. Um, yeah, the the business wasn't going in a good direction. You were fighting, you know, upstream. Yeah." Um, that doesn't make sense. You know, I'm not a person who can bang my head against the wall for very long. Yep. I'll bang it. I can, you know, one of my probably disadvantages is I often see a little bit too far into the future. I'm like, okay, well, I can see what's coming. Connect the dots. Connect the dots. And then I assume that everyone else does that as well. Yeah. And when they don't, it's really hard because you're like, but this is why we've got to do this change, yeah, right? Completely. You can see the pain coming. Everyone doesn't want to, or people don't want to take the short-term pain. They want to push the pain out. Mm. Um, and that's often a, a human characteristic. So, yeah, it was, it was a difficult situation. But look, she backed me, uh, as she always does. Did you take any time off? No, I pretty much started investing you know, straight away. Yeah, straight away. Yeah, I started a small cap fund, um, you know, continue on with venture capital investing, um, was busy sort of, you know, pretty much the next day, um, which was good. Um, but yeah, look, as you, as you said, it was hard. You know, sometimes there'd be moments where you felt like you'd done absolutely the right thing. And then there's moments where you question yourself and go, should I have stayed? Should I have kept fighting? You know, um, was that the right thing to do? And it's just, you know, it's, it's a balance. There's no right or wrong answer in most questions in life. Yeah. And I guess sometimes it comes down to sort of mental health as well, right? Like just, is it worth the stress? Um, but you know, everybody's got to make those decisions for themselves. Um, does, does the press affect you? Like, do you read the AFR? Because I saw a couple of articles, let's be clear. Um, do you read them? <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, how do you not, right? <laughs> how do you not? Well, I mean, My mum reads them and it's even oh, worse. <laughs> you, don't, you, don't, um, you don't actually go out searching for them, right? Like, I don't go and Google myself every no. five minutes. But, no, you know, no. enough when there's, a, when there's an interesting enough article, uh, generally what happens is Somebody like, will send someone, it to you. Or like 10 people will send it to you. Yeah. So there were some pretty cutting ones uh, from the AFR at the time. Yeah. Um, look, that it, it, of course it affects you, but... It, at the end of the day, like you're better off playing with it rather than fighting against it. You know, if that's yep. what their view was, I think one of the guys started calling me one of the characters from Bold and the Beautiful. Um, right. Uh, forget, I forget the name. Um, so I thought, oh, yeah, bloody oath. Okay, I'll embrace that. And I went and changed <laughs> the photo on my website to uh, to the character from the Bold and the Beautiful. Um, oh, anyway, yeah. they then noticed that the AFR noticed that, and he put a you know put another article up the next day, going, oh, kudos to Spencer who, who changed his profile. Um, so I think you know you, you've got to laugh it off um, that you can't be in business and and take yourself that seriously that you know um, you care what so many people write but i mean as you know it's it's hard right it is i think um 
part of, I mean, in my own personal journey is that not everybody knows exactly what's going on yeah. and you can't necessarily share it as well. Yeah. Like, or you don't want to see, be seen to be that bitter person trying to tell the story yeah. as well. Um, so sometimes you're just silent yeah. and sometimes that silence is, is quite painful, yeah. right? Cause you're just going, if only you knew what yeah. was going on, if only you knew, yeah. right? Um, which is, which is a bit, which is a bit tough. Um, well, the other thing you've got to work out is, is the press look for sound bites, mm. right? They look for one simple line, which is, you know, Spence Lee did this, uh, you know, and, and that's okay. And you can't then go and give them this big, long diatribe email or a 20-minute phone call <laughs> explaining to them why they're wrong. They'll go, yeah, 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 okay. But it's just that one line they want. You know, yeah. they, just want to, they just want a controversy sometimes. So you've kind of got to rely on the fact that, well, at least you know and people are smart. And then the other thing is, it, it dissolves over time. You yeah, know? it does. I can't even remember what who the guy was that said all the bad things in the Fin Review or what he, which star he he called me. You know, uh, I just I can't remember it now. Although I still had a guy come out of the woodwork recently with the death threat guy come back again. Oh, you like, kidding? Yeah, no, no. Like, wow. Literally two years after the event, I'm like, wow. dude, get over it. Like, yeah, like seriously. Like I mean, uh, it's it's really it's yeah. There's some there's some special characters. The uh, the other interesting thing for me is that everybody's got an opinion. But yep. they may not be playing the game, yeah. right? So there's a lot of spectators, a lot of people who sit on the side. And look, everybody, it's human nature, I yep. think, I think to have an opinion. Well, I think the things. other thing is people think there are right answers and wrong answers. It's like, right. oh, you made the wrong decision in that situation. It's like, no, I made a decision that was, you know, one of the better ones and there were a lot worse decisions that could have been made. Um, yep. So I think there's just incredible amounts of grey that people miss when they look at business. Yeah. Um, and so putting that into context, I mean, what is your view on the entrepreneurial landscape in Australia? Like, do you think we have a healthy view no. of failure or an unhealthy view? I mean, what's your take now? You've had How long has it been now? It's oh, been a, two and a half years I've been out, been yeah, out of focus. Yeah. So yeah. you've had a chance to ponder and reflect or probably not, probably just move forward. But well, um, what's your view on, on entrepreneurialism in Australia? I think, I think there's it, the thing I'm noticing most is there's a bunch of entrepreneurs, there's a bunch of people who want to start a business and there's this huge ecosystem for them to start that businesses. And they sit around and you know, they go to these incubators and all the incubators are full of the same type of people and they go in there because they want to start a business. They don't quite know what, but you know, they, they're going to go in there. And I just I feel like we've institutionalized it too much, um, mm. that the money's been too easy in the last sort of five, six, seven years. Um, these people, you know, haven't lived through kind of the tech wreck in '99, which you'd remember yep. as well as I do. You haven't lived through the GFC. Um, they've lived through this, you know, like last sort of six or seven year asset bubble appreciation and mm. lots of money flowing into, you know, some really dumb ideas and some really good ideas. Yep. Um, and it's been too easy to raise money. And I think we, we're just in that cycle right now. And, and you see it in the public markets, the micro caps are off, you know, 60, 70, 80%, some of them. Um, they might have good businesses, but the valuations have been reassessed. Uh, and I'm not sure that's come to the park, private market space yet, but it will. And if you look at the people who always talk to me about how important the, you know, entrepreneurs are and startups are to employment, mm. I'm like, they're really important. But it's actually the investors behind that that are really important. Yeah. You take that money away and suddenly there's a lot of people out of jobs. Yeah. Uh, and I just wonder how fundable uh, some of these businesses that are that are, have found it easy to raise money in the last five years actually are and what happens when that merry-go-round stops. Yeah. And so I guess you've got two arms. You've got a, um, a fund that invests outside the ASX 100 and then you've also got your own um, PA investing and you've been doing that for ages. Yep. I'm, assuming, I'm assuming that based on your track record, you get asked to invest in a lot of businesses. Um, what's your what's your view on um, – what what makes a good investment and what do you look for? Uh, look, for me, I mean, you know, I've probably made 16, 17 investments in the venture capital space. Um, Airtasker is probably one of the more successful ones. Yep. Spaceship, um, the fin you know, financial services guys offering super to millennials, uh, another good one. Um, 
a lot of it for me is about the person executing. You know, mm. like are they have they really you know did they want to start a business? You know, mm. or did the business find them and they just had to start the business? So that's the first one for me is is did they have to start the business because it was just in them? Are they, they scratching an inch? Yeah, are they scratching an inch, or did they just wake up one day and went, yeah, I don't really like working for people. I just want a job. You know, go go yeah. start my own you know business and not have a job. Um, so that, I rule a lot of people out. That way, um, just based I on just, motivation. Just based on motivation. I won't even take meetings with people who've kind of. Uh, you can just see it, you hear it from their voice, or you talk to them on the phone. They're just, you know, they just want to start a business. Um, yep. So once you've culled that, then you look at the person. You know, um, how how smart are they? You know, mm. when when can they actually come sit across all of the aspects of the business that you have to? You know, finance, tech, you know, operations, customer service, and can they? Fairly allocate the resources, you know, across all of those, and do they have, or do they have too much of a bias for one thing? I are they a programmer who all he focuses about is developing good code, um, mm. but doesn't actually care about the customer or you know selling the product or, or those types of things. So getting balance in that type of in that, in that founder um, is the next most important thing. Mm. And even and after that, then I start looking at the product. Okay, for me that's the kind of the, the big. So thing. you really start with the founder. You're a founder heavy. Uh, do you have a view? Because there's also a controversial view about whether or not sole founders versus you know, multiple founders. Being a sole founder, I think you probably got a view. Sole founder all the way, all right? the way, absolutely. More than yeah. one founder creates problems. Yeah, I, I've seen that. I mean, look, one of the businesses, I won't name it, but they had three founders, yeah. um, and now two of them are gone, and, and one's left. So, yeah. you know, you look at that and go, I actually really liked a lot of the characteristics about the the middle founder, and mm. now he's gone. Yeah. Um, so I'm left with a, you know, you've got there's you probably always get one dominant person out of that group. Yeah, totally. Uh, and unless the others are willing to work with that dominance, then you've got problems. Yeah. Right? Um, you know, so I think you've got to got to look at it and say, you know, if I if I end up with with one or the other, am I going to be happy? Am I ha- and yeah. it's it's interesting because there's this sort of conventional VC view is you've got to have multiple founders. It spreads the risk, the hacker, the hipster, the hustler, yeah. all that kind of jazz. Um, but my experience is that unless it works really well, um, it's typically a source of. Um, distraction and yeah. conflict in a business, and I think if the business takes off and gets big really quickly, that can work. Yeah, um, because but Australian a, businesses don't often. Yeah, because there's because there's enough space. Yeah. for the founders yeah. to coexist. It's like, oh, hang on, you're really interested in the tech, right? Go and run a yeah. thousand programmers. You know, like yeah. that's awesome. That'll keep him busy. You know, yeah. and the real, the, you know, the really smart guy can do the investor stuff. Yeah. Or, or, or you know, sit across the whole business. Um, yeah. So look, there's no right or wrong answer, but if you're going into business with three founders, mm. you probably just got to assume that at one point you'll end up with one. Yeah. And then as an investor, you kind of want to make sure that you end up with the right one yeah, and try and add some value there. So look, that part of part of what I do as, an, as a VC investor is try and add value. You know, I'm available. I'm now the chairman of Airtasker. Um, mm. You know, I talk to all of the guys that, that I invest in, help them with investor presentations, help them talk to about their business, catch up with them once once or twice every so often just for lunches. You know, try and add some real value. Um, not be a nosy shareholder, but, you mm. know, try and solve some of those problems. And having gone through their journey, you go, how's your stress level? You know, what are you thinking? You know, what are you worried about? Like, you know, just be a sounding board for them. Yeah, because I I see good investors and bad investors, especially in that sort of angel space. So in the early, in early sort of pre A, um, I think investors can do a lot of damage, right? Like they, they, I mean, obviously they need the money, and and you sort of see startups where they get desperate for capital and they'll take any capital they can get their hands on, which isn't necessarily the right thing to do. Um, Or they take the highest valuation. Well, that's also yeah, which is we've spoken about. I mean, this is an absolute nightmare. But then you get investors who really want to run the company. Yeah. Like they're actually buying a, a hobby. Yeah. Um, to a lot of in, to a lot of uh, to a lot of these early stage startups, which I think is which is also, you know, sometimes catastrophic for these yeah. businesses. So you look at the founders, then you look at at, at the product. Um, 
Are you a look? I, I'm a you know I've got a checklist. I've got a DD. I do models and, and I invest that way. Or are you a gut investor? I'm a gut investor. I figured I knew the answer before I asked. Like you know that one. Yeah, yeah, we're pretty similar like that. I yeah. think you know. I mean, I think I wrote you a check. Uh, <laughs> yeah. without, without, <laughs> over, over coffee. It was it? over coffee. Yeah. It was 25k. I think yeah. it was. To be honest, <laughs> I remember it. Don't remember it like it was yesterday. Um, um, it, so I mean, look. There's your answer. Is I've generally made the decision. You know, by the time I've sat down with the the guy that I'm backing, I we mean, are. that's you've had a look at the product. You make sure you stack it up. Um, but that's the point that I, you know, do I go and build long long term models? No. Do no. I look at the growth rate and go? Oh, I can see how much. The thing, the important thing for me is just knowing what more capital the business needs and when it needs it. Mm. So then you go, well, do I put all my money in now or do I invest along the way? You know, like what what does this look like? Are they going to be able to m- raise the money? And you just kind of build a, a capital picture rather than you know any model you build for an early stage business is going to be wrong. So yeah. building the model to make you decide if you're going to invest is fool's, fool's gold. Right? Totally. Do you like markets or do you like products? Um, I, I, both, to yeah. be honest. Yeah, I like, uh, I like a market that's growing that doesn't have tailwind. So, you know, I'll never invest in something where it's a shrinking market but a great business. Um, mm. Just won't do that. Um, but in converse, you know, we'll invest in, in, a, in a really good founder with a really good product um, absolutely any day of the week in, in a business that's growing, in a market that's growing. Yeah, and and so based on the sort of the sum of your experience, I mean, what advice? I mean, I, I sort of share the cynicism in a sense that I think there's a lack of rigor um, that's being applied to to business and startups generally. I think you're right. There's, I think there's a lot of entrepreneurs where people are like, you know what? It's the new black. It yep. seems like it's a great idea. It's not. It's hard, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean, anybody who's done it would sort of probably dis, dis I don't know would you would you want your children to to become entrepreneurs I famously used to say this after about four or five years of having listed at Vocus and people would ask me like oh you know how's the whole journey been and you know I think I'd won a couple of awards and yeah. you know I was the poster child for, for you know for starting businesses and I, I used to say look if I'd known what I know now going back I wouldn't have started the business because mm. there were just so many little things along the way that had to go right for us that we got right yep um, that the chances of ending up building a business that was a multi-billion dollar business from you know selling my house was just mind-boggling. I, I just don't know that that could have happened a second time around. So you know I'm pretty cynical in a lot of ways. Um, but you know if every hundred businesses that start out there, you know maybe one will succeed. Yeah. I mean, of startup land, you know mm. it probably used to be one third. You know, because you include plumbers and people who go out and just start small businesses. But of the entrepreneurs and the guys who go raise money and loss making ideas, probably maybe not even one out of a hundred succeeds. Um, but you know, when it's a good product and you, you're going to use it, and they've got the capital structure right, and they can do what they they can do from a funding perspective, they're the ones to go after. So you, you've got to have faith. Yeah, and and luck and timing and all of those things. <laughs> and and I guess I guess entrepreneurs are fundamentally dissatisfied with the world, right? Yeah. I mean, and they want they want to do something better. They right? want yeah, yeah, they want to change it. Yeah, um, which I which I think is interesting. So, um, do you think entrepreneurs are made, or do you think they are born? Oh, definitely born. Really? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I know it. You know, I've recently met um, some relatives that I've that I've never met out over in Canada. Really quite close relatives, uh, and. Just you know, my grandfather over there was just an entrepreneur. You know, back in he was trading horses and buying land and doing all this sort of stuff. Um, and then you know, finally got to hear kind of how he thought, and it's like, wow, that's exactly how you know how I think and how I've I've done my business. So I think there's a lot of that. You are just programmed to either be uh, see opportunity and want to take risk, mm-hmm. or you're programmed to want to you know get a comfortable job, do your best, and you know work that way. And neither is right or wrong. Mm. But you know, I think with making being an entrepreneur and making startup and business 
sexy. You get a lot of people who just want that stable kind of their, their mentality is is one uh, going. Actually, no, I'm going to go over here and dabble in this, and that's yep. that's where things collide and, and don't work well. Well, and and where I see a lot of heartache um, is when people who are in entrepreneurial endeavors that shouldn't be. Yeah. Right, like, and because it's easy to raise money, right? Like, yeah. anyone can have an idea now, uh, go out and raise a couple of million bucks, yeah. and become an entrepreneur. And if they haven't got the right personality for it, and they haven't got the right, and they're, not, they're in the wrong situation, then it's going to be difficult for them, and you know, hard on the investors. Well, I think the, um, I, I agree. I think the, um, the trend I've seen is that it's easy. Well, it's become harder, but it was easy to get your first round away, yep. and then everybody just popped. Like, so you just sort of hit the wall, yep. and and it was harder to get the second round away. So, like, you know, raise your first million bucks you know on an idea you could do that pretty easily um and there wasn't a lot of sophistication in the investment landscape and people were just funding anything um and then i I actually think we are in for um a a pretty interesting sort of cycle where a lot of these smaller pre-series a businesses are going to go under absolutely yeah And, and i and i think and not many of them have like there's no press of like you know this startup going out of business this startup going out of business that will come Right, it, yeah, it's cyclical. Markets are cyclical. Capital will dial up. The merry-go-round will stop, and the the ones that aren't prepared for that, you know, will will go out of business, and, and we'll see that. Yeah, and, and I, it'll be soon. I, you know, it'll be it'll be next year. Right, it's uh, yeah. calling it right here, right now. Yeah, you know, on, on record. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. So absolutely, mark the tape. But I think um, for me, that has a huge impact on mental health. Like I think you know, seeing sort of entrepreneurial suicide and and you know, drug and alcohol abuse and stress because a lot of those entrepreneurs haven't been prepared for it, and they just don't have that resilience, yeah. which I think is which is, you know, I, I sort of. In, it's sort of people misunderstand me when I say this, but I wish a lot of those entrepreneurs had a small failure early, yeah. uh, because I think once you've if yeah. you've if you've never lost a game, right, um, you sort of start to believe your own bullshit, Absolutely. and 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 so you just sort of live in this deluded world, um, you know, where I've been there as well, where you just go like I can't possibly fail because yeah. I never have, and you don't know what it tastes like, yeah. um, and so that that sort of means that you're not prepared. Yeah, it's right. like a little bit like the Instagram kind of thing now where you know teenagers are growing up feeling really insecure having mental health issues because every time they look on Instagram everyone's having this fabulous life and you know eating fab- fantastic meals and looks pretty and all of this kind of stuff mm. and it's the same in startups right we oh, haven't totally. seen failures so you know if you're sitting there going oh my god I I don't think this money's coming I think this business might go under you feel like the odd one out yeah not Actually, that you're part of the 99. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's so true. I mean, I've got a, a mental health um, peer support group where entrepreneurs come and just talk around, sit around a table and sort of say, you know what, um, I'm, I don't have funding or I've you know got problems. And I think the most surprising thing for entrepreneurs is that they're not alone. Yeah. And actually, because they live in this bullshit curated world where everybody's crushing it, you know, yeah. and, uh, you know, life's great. Um, and you can always find a stat, right? You can always say, uh, oh, you know, we grew 15% month on month. Yeah, it's like, yeah. yeah, we lost three times as much money doing it, but we, we grew 15 15%. But all you publish out there is the 15% stat. And so, yeah, I mean, look, I spent my entire life at Vocus worrying about what could go wrong with the business. We never celebrated our success. You know, mm. very rarely did we do it. Um, and it was because, you know, I'd lived through that 99, you know, bubble that burst in, in early 2000. And I'd, I'd seen what happens. I'd seen so many people out of work, you know, everyone losing their millions of dollars worth of options, which they'd already banked in their head and bought their, their Porsche and, and, and house. Um, and I'd just gone through that. And mm. I just always felt that it could be pulled out you know the rug could be pulled out from under you and i don't see that in today's current band of entrepreneurs sort of a defensive mindset i mean so the the interesting sort of paradox is that as an entrepreneur you've got to take risks you've got to be sort of you know on the front foot but at the same time you've got to i guess 
think about what could go wrong as well. It's sort of a bit of a paradox. Yeah, I think it's it's you've got to shift from being a risk taker to somebody who kind of plans for the plans for the worst as well as the best. And mm. that shift hasn't happened in the current breed at no. all. No. Um, and so how do we how do we stop that? Like oh, what, what conversations like this are pretty yeah, good. If yeah, you're, if yeah. you're out there, have yeah. a plan B. You know, like you know, I say to people um, when I see them today, it's like, what happens if the capital markets close? You know, the, the stock market's off 10, 12 percent in the last you know couple of months. What happens if next year the, the VC market closes? Uh, he goes, oh, I'll never close. We'll always be able to raise money. I'm like, I know. Somebody all, said oh, that. Absolutely. Wow. People say that to me all the time. Wow. All the time. Because I, I pose this question nowadays because I'm trying to make people realise that you know this could happen. They go, oh, it'll never be closed. That was a different market back in 99. Um, it'll just be a question of valuation. We might have to do it 20 or 30% cheaper. I'm like, what about if you have to do it at you know, 80 or 90% cheaper and mm. you get wiped out and, you know, or your investors get wiped out? Well, you just get, get crushed down, crushed 50 down. to 1. Exactly. What happens? What do you do? Do you take that? Oh, no, well, that'll never happen to us. You know, we, We've got a good business. You know, It's like people just don't get it. The, the world is cyclical and – you know, you have to understand and, and understand the past to, to kind of know what, what might be coming. Mm. And so on that basis, I mean, um, there's definitely been a shift, I think, from growth businesses to yield businesses. And and I think people now, when they're investing, want clearer line of sight to break even yep. and, and they want businesses to have good unit economics. And like, by the way, it sounds strange. Businesses should have that anyway. Yes. Um, <laughs> See, this is the world we live in, right? right? We go, there's been a shift to people wanting positive unit <laughs> economics. It's like, hello, are we like, are we maybe in a bubble when we're talking about like, they should, of course they should, right? Yeah. And, and so- The fact that they don't is the warning signal right there, right? right? Yeah. And like, I see a lot of business where I'm like, you know, and it used to be the old, you know, the old crouch cry, which is, you know, how are you going to make money? But it's more like, how are you going to make profit yeah. now? Um, yeah. And this whole, you know, I remember really clearly in, in 99, 2000, everything was being valued on a multiple of revenue. And then I didn't hear about a multiple of revenue for another 15 years. You know, mm. when I listed Vocus, we listed at a $25 million market cap. Mm. Nobody did a, a multiple of revenue. Um, we had six or $7 million of profit when we listed. We listed a four to five times multiple of profit. Right, yeah, right, which is very super conservative. Super conservative, but that was the market, right? Yeah. Yeah. Like that's yeah. not that long ago. That was yep. 2010. Yep. Right. And I, you know, four times EBITDA. Four times EBITDA. And that should have been listing with our growth rate. We should have been listing at, you know, 10 times revenue. revenue. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there should have been another zero on it. But, Absolutely. But the point is, is I hadn't, even at that point in 2010, I hadn't heard of people raising on, you know, multiple of revenue. And now today, it's just ingrained. It's like, oh, but that's, that's cheap. That's only two times revenue. It's like, yeah, yep. but at some point, people want to get money back. Yeah. They have to, or this business has to become self funding. Well, and I think the self funding bit is probably the most important thing as we go into a down cycle, which is can these businesses sustain their own capital requirements yep. in the short term? Exactly. Yeah. Um, even you if you, even if you just got to just hold your breath through a couple of years, right? Yeah. But but you know, a lot of people say, "Oh, I can just turn down the costs or whatever." But uh, I think that gets a little bit harder. Do you know what the problem is? Is people who say that they will turn down the costs, but they'll turn them down too late. Yeah. Right. They're like, "Oh shit, I'm running out of money. I actually have to turn these costs off now." But by then, it's too late, right? Yeah. You're already running out of money. You've got to do that so much earlier. And it's human nature to not want to believe the signs and not want to take those drastic steps till the last bloody minute, right? And I think that's um, I think the number one challenge I see with um, young or or or, or first time entrepreneurs is this confirmation bias where they are. Um, they're afraid to really get the proper validation for either their product. You know, they don't have product market fit, but they think they do, or yeah. they don't want to ask. Um, yeah. You know, the, the, you know, as you said, you can find a metric that suits you. Um, yeah. You may not necessarily, you know, you know, might not be the right one, yep. um, but it works. That, and I think investors, to a certain degree, want want 
uh, I think investors are in denial, or sort of early stage investors are yeah. in denial as well. Right? Yeah, I mean, the, the investors have the same confirmation bias today. It's like, you know, the amount of diligence that a high net worth goes into nowadays is like, oh, I met the guy, he's got a great idea, I think this is the next big thing, I'm going to invest. Yeah. Um, we were talking about it earlier. Nobody actually goes and says, well, what else can I invest in at that same valuation? And what do they look like? Those businesses look like. And, and if you look on the public markets now, it's been the dumping ground for stuff that couldn't get VC money over the last sort of 18 months. And there's businesses on there that are, you know, Comparatively, much better than some of the private businesses. You know, they've used their money well. They're still loss making, and you know, their market caps are ten, twelve million dollars. They mm. might even be approaching break even, and they've got great growth businesses. And you know, they're under ten million dollar market cap. And then you look in the private space and go, there's businesses raising on fifty, sixty, a hundred million dollars that you know aren't getting the traction that are you know still holding those valuations because oh well, last time they raised at this, and you know, therefore they should raise you know at this plus X um, because they're a year down the track. And I think there is there is. You know, next year will be an interesting year. I think you will see a pullback in VC valuations, um, and I think that you know the public markets, when people become more aware of the deals that are in the public market space, mm. you know, and what sentiment does on in an immediacy, an immediacy sort of environment where you know, hang on, shares are down because you know, bad news is out there. Not oh, we have to wait two years for them to run out of cash to see what happens to the valuation in the future. It's going to be an yep. interesting, interesting year. Yeah, I think so. And I think, you know, we spoke about it before we started rolling, but, you know, this idea where I think that there's going to be more of a pegging of private valuations to public market valuations just in terms of where – um, you know, current private market valuations are, which yeah. are which are potentially insane. Yeah, and I think yeah. that the profession as a professional investor, you've got to look at, you know, what else you can do with your money. Right, mm. you can't just tell oh, no, an idea walked in. I'm going to invest in it. You know, you've actually got to look at it and say, well, what's the opportunity cost of that? What am I missing out on? What else is out there? Um, and you've got to move away from this. Oh, well, you know, the, the, this is the comparable. It's valued highly because. When you go off comparable valuations, mm. you know, as they step up like a staircase, which they do, at some point, you know, they they all fall off a cliff together. And yeah. the fact that you know someone raised at one hundred and your business is better than them, and you're raising at one hundred and twenty, makes little difference when they all fall off a cliff in terms of valuation together. Yeah, totally. So you are running a fund now. Um, do you have a structured day? Like, how do you how do you manage your sort of day now that you're a man of leisure in the <laughs> investment world? Man of leisure in the investment world. I wish I was a man of leisure. Yeah. Um, no, very unstructured. Yeah. As I say, I'm a, I, was the thing at the start. I'm a good leader, not a good manager. So yep. that includes of my own time. Um, <laughs> no, look, I try and see you know a couple of companies a day on yep. average. Um, so I try and see sort of twenty or thirty at least. Uh, you know, in a month. Um, you know, busier months probably a little bit more than that. Uh, you know, try and keep an idea on what's happening in the public markets as well as in the venture capital markets. Um, so see some businesses, do some work on their models. Um, you know, managing 16 venture investments is is a little bit of work there too. You've always got someone raising money, somebody doing something, yep. you know, moving to the US, top hatting their structure, whatever else it is. Uh, I think your old venture gave me a lot of paperwork headaches uh, <laughs> along the way. There's been a, been a bit of restructuring there. Um, but look, yeah, there, there's always some work to go on there. So making sure you take care of the time-sensitive stuff uh, first. Uh, and then also just keeping your, your mental headspace. I think if you sit in front of a screen watching the markets, watching stocks all day every day, you lose a bit of that kind of free thinking and like, hang on, you know, I want to step back from this and go, does this actually even make sense? You know, if you're looking at comparable valuations, come back and say, yeah, but I'm paying $100 million for something that, you know, I don't, I don't think is actually going to make it a cash flow positive in 10 years. Like, does that make sense right yep. now? You know, what's, what's, What's my opportunity cost? So that just get some perspective. So one of the things I try and do is I work. I work hard. Um, uh, you know, I, I come into the office every day. Um, I'm always thinking about stocks. I'm always thinking about companies. I'm always taking meetings. Um, but also I try and give myself some time to get some perspective and just keep the like, mental health kind of yeah, sharp com- and completely. Know. Do you have that fear of missing out on deals? Because I th- I think a lot of investors 
like throw reason out the door when something's oversubscribed? Yeah, I think there's an interesting one is when you get – like people plant that seed, just go. Oh, this deal's going to be like, hot. Like, well, no, but every deal, deal right? I've, I've never got this deal's cold. That's like, true. <laughs> like That's true. oh, mate, it's at least four times oversubscribed. Yeah, yeah. I think right. um, as you get older, uh, your fear of missing out subsides a little bit. Yeah, um, it's like I think it's the same thing. I said this in another podcast, but it's like when I was twenty, I was never wrong. When I'm thirty, you know, I, I was wrong but couldn't admit it. And then you know, now I'm forty, I'm freely freely admitting it. Um, the one thing I want to know is what happens when you're fifty, right? Are you always wrong? Yeah, <laughs> I, better, I better stop doing what I'm Hopefully doing. Forty nine doesn't right? matter. Yeah, you that's know? right. Or maybe it doesn't. Um, so I th- you know, I think you've got to kind of lose that fear of missing out. Um, it, it's not the end of the world. You know, if you miss the next Uber, that's you know, that's it. But if, as long as you made a had a good reason for missing it, um, mm. yeah, that reason is valid no matter what. Yeah. Um, so looking back on your career, what advice would you give yourself now? Uh, yeah, I, honestly, it would be to stop and enjoy the process mm. more. I really, I was so busy and always on the go. I felt like um, life was driving me, not I was driving life. And yeah. I would have liked to have just stopped and, and enjoyed some of the moments along the way. Even when the shit was going down for me, there are periods of time where I go, oh, I wish I had have savoured yeah. that moment a yeah. little bit more. Yep. Exactly. And um, it can be five minutes out of your life. Just I remember we did the public markets takeover of Amcom. It was a $600 million acquisition. TPG came in and blocked it. If you remember this, they mm. bought a 19.9% stake in, in Amcom uh, to block the transaction. Uh, never been defeated. 19% stake had never been defeated, so it was done and dusted. Um, we kept fighting. We said we're going to go down fighting. Uh, we fought it and we won by like half a percent. It was the first time in corporate history a blocking stake had been, had been defeated. And you know what we did? Absolutely nothing. We just got back to work and just kept working, you know. And it just—it should have been a moment where you just said, "Wow, we just, you know, act, like we're in the textbooks now. Like they teach, yeah. you know, corporate law, and they talk about the Amcom transaction. Um, yep. that should have been something we absolutely took, you know, a couple of hours out of our day, went and had a long lunch, you know, enjoyed it, told some stories, but we just went back to work and like, okay, well, that's done. Tick. What's next? Yeah. Um, God, you just got to enjoy those moments. So, yeah, I reckon anyone out there who's who's not taking five minutes out of your day just to enjoy the little things, um, mm. do that. Yeah. Keep a got- diary. Keep a diary. I wish I'd kept a diary. You yeah, know? you didn't. You don't have no, any. nothing. I've got my emails to go back on. But just how you yeah. were feeling at the time, like what, what you were thinking. Like, there's people come up and remind me, you know, I see old Vocus people and they go, oh, do you remember that day and we did this and that happened? I was like, yeah. And you know, they yeah. go, oh, you, were, you were super pumped about that. I'm like, yeah, you know. You forget, right? You forget so much. And it's amazing. Those things that you think you'll always remember, you always forget. Yeah, it's it's it is it's it's it sort of uh, goes by really quickly. Yeah, and even if your journey isn't successful, now, you're going to use that for next time, right? Like I, I had that unsuccessful business, you know, I learned a lot from it. Um, mm. Those things, those lessons will always come in handy. Um, write them down, enjoy it, like just celebrate it. Completely. Um, I'd finish off with a couple of quick fire questions, if that's okay. Sure. Favorite book. I don't really have a favourite book, um, I'm, but I'll tell you what I'm going to start reading over the holidays, which what? is the Kimi Raikkonen uh, book on uh, the Formula One. Formula driver. One, yeah, yeah. I like Kimi because he's uh, always not for sort of telling things how it is, and he doesn't sugarcoat. Well, things. he's finished, he's right? Finished, right? So, so they, have, they, have, they have zero filter. Yeah. So I totally love that. I totally respect that. I try and live my life that way. Is just like give you the honest. You big F1 fan, right? Huge. Who are you supporting at the moment? Oh, uh, well, Kimi Raikkonen, right? <laughs> you support anyone who uh, the famously he was. Uh, they asked him if he'd seen the ceremony from Pele, uh, and he and he said, uh, No, no, I missed it. They go, What were you doing, Kimi? He said, Actually, I was uh, having a shit. <laughs> Sorry, Again, the listeners out fin- there. No, finish. Finish. Right? No, no, uh, no, no, uh, no filter. iPhone or Android? Uh, iPhone. Okay. Um, favorite app? Uh, favorite app? Ooh, that's a tough one. Um, probably Maps. 
Really? Oh, God. Do you remember? Are you a Google on? Maps or an Apple Maps person? Oh, I, both. Whichever clicks when I open it. Is, <laughs> right, I, I just right. want to know how to get to A to B. But do you remember going on holidays before Maps? Yeah, well, somebody, sp- um, somebody oh, mentioned God. to me on a podcast the other day, MapQuest. Right. Remember you used to look yeah. at it and you used to print out. You used to, you used to, look, you'd used to get turn by turn, then print them out yeah, yeah. and sit in your car with your turn yeah, by turn. Exactly, yeah. I just, reckon, I just remember going to Italy just after we'd listed Vocus. Actually, it was the day we listed Vocus. I needed a holiday and, and we listed and I was over in Italy. And uh, I, just, I still remember getting lost for about three hours of every day we were driving around somewhere. Yeah. Uh, and then now you go overseas somewhere and you just get from A to B and it's seamless. So just yeah. technology. I reckon it must have smashed Lonely Planet a bit as well. That's like those, yeah. those Lonely Planet guides. I don't know if they've digitised them, but uh, are you a pineapple on pizza person? I, I actually am. Yeah. I'm, I'm that's like, no, that's like, why is it embarrassing? That's okay. Are you a po- Facebook... Facebook like, <laughs> tells you that tells you cannot that have. Yeah, it does right. not. I'm a Facebook pi- shame. See, I'm I'm fighting the power. I'm pineapple and pizza all the so way. Um, are you favourite TED Talk? Are you a TED Talk watcher? I generally look. I really struggle with with books, with hearing other. I just I kind of I like to go through my journey myself. How do you get your market knowledge? Are you a, like a do you read the news? Are you an HU an AFR paper or uh, you, not, not a paper? I gave that up a few years ago. Yeah, yeah. I don't even know they still make it. Um, but <laughs> no, look, definitely an AFR. Um, but I have my conversations. You know, I just yeah. I like to kind of have in- intellectual conversations with people, debate stuff, work out where you're wrong, work out where you're right. Um, Com- you know. Completely. Um, music listener. Yeah, I love music. Okay, if you had to take a album to a desert island, what would it be? Oh, can I can I say can I take Spotify? <laughs> <laughs> no, that is that is completely cheating. <laughs> Who's your favorite artist? Uh, I don't know. I don't like, I really struggle with these questions cuz just everyone is good for different time. Like you get sick of someone and you yeah, move on. Okay. So, but I like I really loved uh, Dua Lipa up until Okay. Uh, so you're not like so you don't have like a hardcore fandom of no. any way. Um if you could invite somebody to dinner, living or dead, who would it be? If you're not, or you, or you just meet somebody, just one person. Yeah, just one. Oh, jeez. Um, oh, Steve Jobs. Steve Jobs. Yeah. Do you reckon he'd be an interesting dinner conversation? Oh, I reckon he'd be pretty arrogant. But yeah, you, know. <laughs> you have to feed him vegan. Yeah. Um, uh, who, is there somebody you'd like to thank publicly or acknowledge? Oh, I think every, everyone who ever worked for Vocus um, and contributed to making it the most enjoyable kind of nine years of my life. Um, they were responsible for the success of the business and yeah, have to and for the enjoyment of being there. Did you have a long tenure of the team? Like, yeah, was it absolutely. predominantly a core team that sort of stayed with you over absolutely. that period of time? Yeah, I mean, we just never lost people. Really, um, yeah, it was very, very rare. I think that's as a side note. I think that's. Um, an underappreciated asset in a business tenure. It's good diligence actually to ask a startup. Like, tell me, tell me about your staff. Like, what's yeah? How long have they been there? Because yeah. I think turnover is an indication of potentially an unhealthy yeah. culture. Yeah, hundred um, percent. Uh, where can people find out more about you? Are you a LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram website? Yeah, I'm uh, definitely LinkedIn. Um, you can find it in Google. Um, you can Google some me. Stuff that comes up there. You I don't know. Don't, 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 don't Google the uh, yeah, nasty yeah, AFR yeah, articles. Yeah, don't Google me either. <laughs> um, I think I think we're we're launching a website at some point um, just for some of the speaking stuff that yeah. we're doing. So it'll be jamespensley.com. Okay, fantastic. Well, mate, thank you so much. It's good to reconnect. Yeah, likewise. Thank you for the first check. Yeah. Um, hopefully, there'll be more in the future. And um, yeah, good luck with the fund, and uh, be good to chat with you again on the podcast likewise, at some mate. point in the future. Yeah, thanks a lot. Thanks, buddy. I hope you enjoyed James's episode. Uh, he's just an amazing individual. Over the next few weeks, we've also got some great guests coming on the podcast, including New York Times number one bestseller and author of Tribal Leadership, John King, 
and the general partner at Rampersand Ventures, Paul Naptali. So please stay tuned. If you'd like to find out more about me or the podcast, then check out jamiepride.com. Thanks for listening and please subscribe to make sure you get all the latest episodes. Have a great week and don't forget to take care of yourself.